This episode features discussion of kidnapping, suicidal ideation, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Patricia Hurst was trying to make sense of art history. She stared down at her textbook, trying to ignore her fiancé, Steve, who studied economics next to her on the sofa. She tried to shake the feeling that something wasn't right between them, that she wasn't happy with her comfortable housewife existence, that she didn't have friends at Berkeley, that she might not really love him. Focus, she thought. Midterms were coming soon. Steve answered the door before Patricia could warn him not to. Last week, she'd worried someone might be following her. You never knew. It was a strange girl at the door. She was agitated. She'd hit a car in the garage under the complex and wanted to borrow the phone. Angry and disgusted, Patricia went to the door. The dumb girl probably hit Patricia's MG Roadster. She'd give her a piece of her... Two men burst into the house, and the girl grabbed Patricia. Be quiet, and nobody will get hurt. The girl pointed an automatic pistol at Patricia's face. Before Patricia could scream again, one of the men was straddling her on the floor. Face pressed against the linoleum, she could hear Steve crying. Take anything you want, anything you want, he said. Patricia tried to get free, but the man yelled at her to keep her head down and gagged her. The intruders blindfolded Patricia and dragged her to the door. Steve continued screaming in complete shock. Patricia worried they were stabbing him. She spit out her gag and screamed bloody murder, praying the neighbors would hear. The neighbors heard, but the men hit Patricia in the head and dragged her outside. They threw her in the trunk of a car and drove off. It was approaching 9.30 p.m. on Monday, February 4, 1974, and Patricia Campbell Hurst had just been taken hostage. This is Hostage, the new ParCast podcast telling the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in hostage negotiations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can listen to all of ParCast podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. New episodes come out every Thursday. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the kidnapping of Patricia Campbell Hurst, the Symbionese Liberation Army, and FBI Operation Hernap. On February 4th, 1974, Donald DeFries, Angela Atwood, and Bill Harris took 19-year-old Patricia Hurst from her Berkeley, California apartment. Assisted by the rest of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, they kept her in a closet for 57 days. In one of the biggest embarrassments in FBI history, Patricia was MIA for a year and a half, despite her famous name and family fortune. In today's episode, we'll look at the Hurst family, the SLA, and the dramatic events surrounding Patricia's kidnapping. 
Summer 1973. An escaped convict, a sex worker, and a gun-toting janitor discuss revolution. Their cramped, dirty apartment is filled with fringe newspapers, overdue library books, and drafts of manifestos. They've chosen a seven-headed cobra as their symbol. The trio had been holed up for weeks, only taking occasional breaks from their radical debates to have sex with each other. But unlike hundreds of other conversations happening in Berkeley's radical underworld, their plans to incite chaos will actually come to pass. The deadly trio is composed of the three types of people a terrorist group needs to operate. A leader, a follower, and an opportunist. Identified by former FBI crisis negotiator Thomas Strenz, this dark trio of personalities is what catalyzes deadly ideas into deadly actions. There's Ms. Moon Saltisik, the janitor, a bisexual feminist who dropped out of Berkeley and delights in bringing home reading material after her shifts cleaning the school's library. It's her apartment, but she's the follower. Strenz describes the follower, or idealist, as a, quote, loser, fallen victim to rhetoric and deceit, end quote. It's someone who went searching for a purpose and found it in terrorism. Next to her, Nancy Ling Perry, the sex worker, an inhabitant of San Francisco's criminal underbelly. She survived homelessness, divorce, and drug abuse. But now, Ling Perry writes manifestos as if she's on a new drug. Strenz characterizes her as the leader for her ideology and planning, even though both women answer to the man in their group, Donald DeFries. DeFries, in hiding after escaping Soledad prison, took the ego boost of sleeping with two women at once and began to fancy himself the leader of a cult, or as he prefers, an army. He's what Strenz calls the opportunist, a narcissistic former felon who turns the group's radical ideas into terrorist crimes. In this Berkeley apartment filled with paper, the three agents of chaos give birth to the Symbionese Liberation Army, And in between arguing over tactics for revolution and drafting their codes of war, they're plotting a murder. How did they get here? It starts with Donald DeFries, a poor black boy born in Cleveland. He escaped his abusive home to California, but by the time he was 26, his rap sheet included armed robbery, grand theft auto, and kidnapping a rabbi. After one arrest in 1968, he was examined by a psychologist who noted DeFries was an, quote, emotionally confused and conflicted young man with deep-rooted feelings of inadequacy. His disorganization and impaired social adjustment seemed to suggest a strong schizophrenic potential. His fascination with firearms and explosives makes him dangerous, end quote. DeFries stayed out of jail by working as a police informant, but kept up a pattern of arrests and probation violations. On November 17, 1969, DeFries was caught trying to cash a stolen check at a Bank of America. A gunfight ensued. The LAPD had enough. This crime finally landed the 26-year-old in Vacaville Prison, just north of San Francisco. 
There, DeFries joined the Black Cultural Association, or BCA, in 1970. The BCA started as an educational group designed to help black inmates use their time in prison to learn about African-American culture and history. Keyword is started. According to the New York Times, the BCA became a political group in the vein of the black power movement. As part of this, they encourage members to adopt new names. For many inmates, a new name can be a positive turn, a change for the better. For DeFries, however, this was not the case. DeFries began styling himself General Field Marshal Sinkyu Mtume. Sinkyu, after a leader of a slave rebellion, and Mtume is a Swahili word for prophet. Calling himself a prophet, DeFries was showing a sense of narcissism and claiming a divine connection. In 1971, BCA volunteers introduced DeFries to Blood in My Eye, a book by Black Panther and prison activist George Jackson. Through Blood in My Eye, DeFries learned about FOCO theory, a tactic originated by Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara. FOCO theory states the best way to incite revolution is for small groups to commit acts of violence as a way to stand up to the corrupt government. Once the acts of rebellion are carried out and covered by the news, they inspire the masses and provoke political change. It became the core belief of the SLA. Foco theory did not work for Che Guevara, and it did not work for Donald DeFries. But for the rest of his life, Foco theory was Donald DeFries's North Star. He was a criminal, but in his mind, his crimes would make him a hero for the common man. He found the first people who heroized him in his fellow prisoners and young volunteers. The BCA, and Vacaville Prison in general, saw plenty of volunteers. In particular, DeFries grew close to Berkeley student Willie Wolf and hippie burnout Russ Little. They saw DeFries as their own personal civil rights leader. Leading a small offshoot of the BCA, which he dubbed Unicite, DeFries finally got the attention he craved, but it was quickly taken away from him. In December 1972, DeFries was transferred from Vacaville Prison to Soledad Prison, which was about two hours away from Berkeley and its student volunteers. This could have been the end of DeFries' associations with Berkeley students. However, three months later, he escaped from prison. DeFries ran to his friends Wolf and Little in Berkeley. There, Little introduced him to Ms. Moon Soltisik. They struck up a relationship and moved in together. Soon they were joined by Little's former lover, Nancy Ling Perry, and the SLA was born. Founded in 1973, the Symbionese Liberation Army comprised of roughly a dozen American 20-somethings and teetered on the verge of becoming a cult. The name Symbionese Liberation Army is designed to sound as if it was organized to free a nation. It wasn't. Symbionese is a made-up word derived from symbiosis, the mutually beneficial relationships between different organisms, like a clownfish and a sea anemone. DeFries, Ling Perry, and Saltisic intended for the group to benefit a variety of disenfranchised groups, including low-income workers, prisoners, and people of color. 
but he believed these benefits could only be achieved through terrorism. The SLA believed their terrorist acts would inspire copycat groups with the same revolutionary ideals, creating a snowball effect which would overturn world governments and put power in the hands of the people. Kidnapping, murders, and bank robberies were simply necessary steps on the path to equality. But the Central Trio knew they couldn't commit to focal theory, acts of rebellion, and cold-blooded killing without help. The members of the SLA fluctuated, but there were 10 core members involved in the Hearst kidnapping. DeFries, Saltisic, Perry, Little, and Wolf recruited their roommates and lovers, starting with Willie Wolf's roommate, Vietnam vet Joe Ramiro. Next, the SLA recruited Ramiro's current girlfriend and Russ Little's ex, actress Angela Atwood. Then they brought in Saltisic's ex-girlfriend, Camilla Hall. Rounding out the group of ten, more messy romantic dynamics in the form of bickering couple Emily and Bill Harris. They were Atwood's roommates, also actors. With the core of the SLA in place, DeFries had them all read Marx, Mao, and George Jackson's book, Blood in My Eye. Foco theory spread through the group like a virus, and it infected them with the desire for chaos. By the fall of 1973, the SLA was ready to act. Up next, we'll hear how the SLA pivoted from political theory to brutal murder. Now back to the story. In the summer and fall of 1973, members of the SLA, especially Donald DeFries, spent much of their time reading the news. Remember, DeFries was an escaped convict in hiding. He didn't see much of the outside world. Exactly. One major figure in the news that year was Marcus Foster, the first black superintendent of Oakland Unified School District. Foster's biggest worry in Oakland was keeping kids safe. Rightly so. Foster implemented a plan to have school security guards and fought a plan to make every student carry an ID card. The SLA unfortunately got their news wrong and believed Foster was hiring police officers to monitor schools and forcing students to carry identification. They were reading a lot of fringe papers and unverified reporting. DeFries got the idea in his head that Foster was his rival. They were two black leaders on opposite sides of the system. DeFries believed they were destined to fight to the death. Marcus Foster had no idea who Donald DeFries was. Heavily misguided, the SLA planned their first act of rebellion for November 6, 1973. Leaving the school board meeting that night, Marcus Foster and Robert Blackburn were tired but content. They'd done their best to advocate for students that day, spending the afternoon lobbying for city funding to keep school gyms open after classes. Marcus hoped they'd agreed to his proposal and allow sports and clubs to thrive. He followed Robert across the slick asphalt to his Chevy Vega. The men were carpooling that day. Suddenly, Robert picked up his pace. He noticed three twenty-somethings crouching in the alley parking lot. Something was off. Nancy Ling Perry shot Marcus Foster in the leg. 
Donald DeFreeze shot at Robert Blackburn, grazing his back. The SLA kept firing at the unarmed educators. Foster dove for the car door, trying to find shelter from the bullets hailing in his direction. But the gunshots kept coming. A series of shots pelted Foster, each closer than the last. Ms. Moon Saltisic was using Foster's body like a paper target at a shooting range. Foster crumpled, but Saltisic didn't stop. She waited for him to stop moving, aimed at his neck. The last bullet was fatal. Three months later, this group kidnapped Patricia Hurst. The bullets that killed Marcus Foster had hollow points and were packed with cyanide. The SLA had an obsession with cyanide and used it any chance they could. After the shooting, they typed a warrant for execution, claiming the credit for killing Foster and injuring Blackburn. This communique, as they called all of their public statements, was dropped off at Berkeley's radio station, KPFA, and soon... Everyone in the Bay Area knew what the SLA was. And they hated them. The SLA was completely misguided in thinking people disliked Marcus Foster. He was a good man, and his assassination turned him into a martyr. The SLA realized their plan had backfired. Instead of becoming heroes, they were despised. If they wanted to gain sympathy for their cause... The SLA knew they needed to dial back the violence. They needed something less horrifying. They picked kidnapping. This was another borrowed idea from the Uruguayan Tupamaros. The Tupamaros were leftist urban guerrillas who successfully kidnapped public figures for political gain. The SLA planned to do the same. Never mind that there hadn't been a high-profile kidnapping in the U.S. since the Lindbergh baby or that there hadn't been a political kidnapping in the U.S. ever. The SLA poured through newspapers and TV news for potential targets, then researched everything they could about them. Their targets were mainly corporate executives, rich white men whose disappearance would gain media attention and who could fund a ransom. But one afternoon, the week before Christmas, 1973, Bill Harris was reading the paper, and came across the society pages. Mr. and Mrs. Randolph A. Hurst of Hillsborough have announced the engagement of their daughter, Patricia Campbell Hurst, to Stephen Andrew Weed. Patricia is a junior studying art history at UC Berkeley. A Hurst in Berkeley? Why don't they forget the old men and kidnap her? Patricia Campbell Hurst grew up the middle of five sisters in a beautiful San Francisco mansion in the exclusive Hillsborough neighborhood. She struck genetic gold as the granddaughter of one of the most famous newspaper magnates ever, William Randolph Hearst. The name Hearst may not be so impressive today, but in that time, they were phenomenally wealthy and a household name. Patricia's grandfather and the family patriarch, William Randolph Hearst, is best known for using yellow journalism to sway public opinion in support of the Spanish-American War and inspiring the 1941 film classic Citizen Kane. Patricia Hearst, on the other hand, 
had never seen Citizen Kane. Well, she was born in 1954. She says she had bad knees, but they never stopped her from playing sports. She was practical, social, a doer. Her happy childhood included spontaneous weekend fishing and hunting trips with her father. Without a son, Randy Hurst was happy to teach his daughters traditionally male pastimes, though Patricia was the only one interested in learning to shoot. Patricia's mother, Catherine, was much stricter. Catherine didn't let her girls bike along the highways with their friends, go to slumber parties, or wear blue jeans in public. She was a conservative Catholic Southerner, and she and Patricia constantly butted heads. Over the years, Patricia was in and out of multiple private Catholic schools. She didn't get along with the nuns. Well, eventually, Patricia landed at the school her younger sister attended, Crystal Springs School for Girls. It was right in her hometown, and instead of frigid nuns, had young male teachers. Patricia soon set her sights on her little sister's math teacher, Stephen Weed. Patricia was 16, and he was 23, fresh out of Princeton. Patricia struck up a friendship during school hours and then asked Stephen to tutor her in math outside of school. There, they struck up more than a friendship. Patricia knew her parents wouldn't approve, so she kept her relationship a secret. She may have had rebellious desires, but she wasn't looking to upset her parents. Patricia graduated high school the next year, a year early, and attended Menlo College in 1971. She had a dorm room shared with the daughter of the Iranian Minister of Agriculture, but she secretly moved in with Stephen. They lived out the year comfortably, with Patricia keeping Stephen secret from her family. After Patricia turned 18, her thoughts turned to marriage. So when Steve got into grad school to earn a PhD in philosophy at Berkeley, Patricia followed him there. Before starting school, she finally decided to come clean to her parents. When they finally met him in 1972, Catherine and Randy Hurst disliked Stephen, largely because he had just failed Patricia's younger sister, Vicky, in math. They weren't wild about Berkeley either. Even though Catherine Hurst was on the board of regents for the University of California, she thought her children were too good for the UCs. And Catherine was rightfully worried about the presence of radicals on campus, just not in the way she ever expected. At Berkeley, Patricia lived in a bubble. She studied art history, but didn't participate in campus life. She wasn't aware of any of the radical movements and fancied herself a homemaker. The only college pastime she participated in was smoking marijuana. She and Steve grew cannabis plants in their backyard. Patricia and Steve were finally officially engaged in December of 1973, setting a wedding date for June 1975. Their announcement ran in the San Francisco Examiner, the Hearst newspaper that her father nominally published. Patricia should have been happy. She was engaged, studying her passion at a great school and heiress to a large fortune. However, over the next few months, her mental health went downhill. Patricia began having doubts about Stephen. She wanted out, but the ball was rolling. Her mother was already planning an impressive society wedding. Patricia fantasized about running away and joining the Navy and even contemplated suicide. It's important to keep Patricia's mental health in mind, given what happened next. 
A 2006 study at the University of Virginia found a correlation between feelings of depression and susceptibility to peer pressure. Patricia's depression certainly factored into her behavior when she was kidnapped by the SLA. Before her kidnapping, Patricia was feeling weak, vulnerable, depressed, and by her own account, paranoid. She was at a low point and would be more likely to listen to what others told her. In a way, the SLA lucked out. Patricia was a perfect target. She was malleable, impressionable, and unlike the wealthy old bankers, someone the SLA could control. In January 1974, the SLA surveilled Patricia's Berkeley apartment. They'd found her address in a public directory inside Berkeley's administration building. They noted that she was usually home on Monday nights, that there was no security and not much traffic in the area. About three weeks before the kidnapping, a wrench hit the SLA's plans. When visiting the SLA headquarters, which were currently in a suburban house in Concord, California, Russ Little and Joe Ramiro left their van parked in the neighborhood. The presence of the unknown van sparked police suspicion, so officers decided to check out the van's owners. When police approached Little and Ramiro outside the van, the men were on their guard. The police didn't know it yet, but the van contained incriminating SLA documents. The conversation between the police, Little and Ramiro, turned violent within minutes. Ramiro fired on the police and tried to run. The officers apprehended Little on sight and quickly tracked down Ramiro, who just happened to be carrying the gun used to kill Marcus Foster. On January 10th, both men were arrested in connection to Foster's murder. After the arrest, the remaining members of the SLA believed their location might be compromised. They had to abandon their headquarters. But picking up and leaving wasn't enough for Nancy Ling Perry. She wanted to burn the place down. They filled the house with gunpowder and gasoline, lit a fuse, and drove away. But they made one mistake. They forgot to open the windows. So while there was a small explosion outside, enough to frighten the neighbors, the house remained relatively unscathed, as did all of the propaganda, notes, weapons, and cyanide bullets inside. The police failed to secure the house, so journalists and curious locals rummaged through the crime scene, compromising it and taking anything they wanted. However, the police had a major break. They already had Little and Ramiro in custody. But now, they had weapons, fingerprints, a map of the location Foster was killed at, and the schedule for school board meetings. The SLA's responsibility for the murder was undeniable, and apparently more members were out there. While all this became public knowledge, one thing the police found didn't. It was a list of potential kidnapping victims written by Nancy Ling. On it, Patricia Hurst. But the police didn't take this list seriously. None of the targets on the list were ever warned. In just a moment, we'll explore the night Patricia Hurst was kidnapped. Now, back to the story. After Little and Ramiro were arrested in January 1974, 
the remaining members of the SLA hid in Daly City. They determined code names and used them from then on out. DeFries already had his as Sin Q Mtume, or Sin. Ling Perry was Fahiza, Soltisik, Zoya, Wolf, Cujo, Hall, Gabby, Atwood, General Jelena, and the Harrises were Tico and Yolanda. The new names were inspired by revolutionaries and communist heroes. This is something else DeFries borrowed. Not only the names themselves, but their psychological significance. In many religions, including Catholicism, Judaism, and Mormonism, members receive new names during or for use at religious rites. In each religion, the name symbolizes a renewed commitment and changed identity. The name makes you part of the group. By changing their names, the members of the SLA were committing to the terrorist group on a religious level. Continuing to hammer in loyalty, DeFries borrowed from another cultural tradition. The SLA designed an official flag, a seven-headed cobra on a red background. Each head represented a value of the group, presented in Swahili. In English, the values are faith, creativity, purpose, cooperative production, collective work and responsibility, self-determination, and unity. Those don't sound bad. Well, many people would agree with you. They are, after all, the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Lastly, the SLA updated their kidnapping plan. After their crime inspired the masses, they'd trade Hearst for Ramiro and Little, or, failing that, safe passage to Cuba. But their organized plot involved three cars. And after the police impounded the car they caught Little and Ramiro with, the SLA only had two cars. They didn't want to alter their airtight kidnapping plan. So before kidnapping Patricia Hearst, they'd have to steal a car. February 4th, 1974, about 9 p.m., Mathematician Peter Benenson was grocery shopping. It was Monday night. His evening could not have been more mundane. But as he carried bags to his car, he was approached by a theatrical woman. Give me your keys. We want your car, not you, Atwood said. Benenson hesitated at the door of his 64 Chevy convertible. He was surprised and confused. Then Emily and Bill Harris pounced. They knocked him to the ground, tied him up. They took his keys and threw him in the back seat of his own car. The three covered Benenson with a blanket so he couldn't see where they were going and drove to Patricia Hearst's apartment where the rest of the SLA waited. When Angela Atwood knocked on Patricia Hearst's door, Peter Benenson was a hostage already, trapped in his own car, the getaway car. It took four minutes to kidnap Patricia Hurst. Three armed people, DeFreeze, Atwood, and Harris, burst into the apartment after Steve Weed innocently opened the door. Atwood aimed her automatic at Patricia's head, backing her into the kitchen. Atwood tried unsuccessfully to gag her with a racquetball. Seeing Patricia put up a fight, Harris bolted over and pinned her to the ground. He tied her up, gagged, and blindfolded her. But Patricia clenched her jaw so the gag would loosen when she relaxed. 
through this, DeFreeze demanded access to the safe. Patricia and Steve didn't have a safe. Take anything you want, Steve said, offering his wallet. DeFreeze lifted his weapon and knocked Steve out. This whole time, the SLA had left the door open. Steve Suenaga, a neighbor, noticed the scuffle from the apartment hallway and came to investigate. DeFreeze and Atwood grabbed him, forced him to the floor, and tied him up, too. Patricia spit out her gag and pled with the invaders to leave them alone. Harris threatened to knock her out. Atwood threatened to kill them all. DeFreeze hit Swanaga over the head with his machine gun. Weed managed to get to his feet. Harris pushed him back down. Weed rose again and made a break for the back entrance. He broke through the screen door, desperate to get help and unwilling or unable to fight for his fiancée. On the other side of the building, Camilla Hall waited in the driver's seat of Benenson's car. She'd backed it up into the driveway. The trunk was popped, ready. Hall's foot hovered over the gas pedal. Harris dragged Patricia out of her apartment, leaving Swanaga on the floor. A study group from a nearby apartment stepped outside after hearing screams. DeFreeze stared them down. He fired his gun twice. He missed, but he spooked them enough to keep them from chasing the man carrying their tied-up, half-naked classmate toward the parking lot. Patricia screamed for help. Harris managed to get a kicking, wriggling Patricia to the trunk. With one hand on his victim, he tried to raise the top of the trunk. It opened and slammed shut, locked, with Patricia Hurst outside. Harris ran to grab the key from Hall, who was still in the driver's seat. Patricia wriggled out of her bonds and ran into the carport, hair wild, wearing only a bathrobe. If she could get to her car, she could drive to safety. Bill Harris hit her with the back of a rifle. Patricia crumpled, and Harris picked her up and threw her into the trunk. This time, it closed with Patricia inside. Hall hit the gas and the Chevy drove off. Minus the quick trunk incident, everything went according to plan. No one was killed or even hit by a bullet. The SLA even had the forethought to take Patricia's purse so they could prove they were the people who'd taken her later on. They left cyanide tip bullets as their calling card. DeFreeze wanted everyone to know he had Patricia Hurst. After all, they were committing this crime for attention. But they didn't want the attention quite yet. One of the cars, a Volkswagen driven by Willie Wolf, was pulled over almost immediately. In the other car, DeFreeze and Harris gripped their guns. Should they kill again? Would they kill again? They pulled over as the cop spoke to Wolf. DeFreeze unlocked his car door. Inside the trunk, a fully conscious and completely terrified Patricia frantically worked at untying her bonds. She was gagged again, so she couldn't scream, but maybe she could break out or make some noise. Willie Wolf flicked on his headlights. And then the cop walked away from Wolf's car. He got back into his cruiser and drove off. The officer had only stopped Wolf to remind him to turn on his lights. 
the SLA continued back to Daly City, two hostages in tow. About half a mile from Berkeley, they pulled over again. Peter Benenson was left tied up in the back of his car. They threatened to hurt him if he called the police. SLA members popped the trunk and were shocked to find that Patricia had untied herself. She wanted to make a break for it, but she couldn't outrun eight people. They retied her, put her on the floor of the station wagon, and covered her with a blanket. DeFreeze told Patricia that if she made any noise, he'd blow her head off. As they drove to Daly City, Bill Harris held her hand. When they arrived at the SLA safe house, DeFreeze secured Patricia's blindfold. This relieved Patricia momentarily. If they didn't want her to see them, that meant they planned on letting her go alive. She tried to memorize the sound of their voices so she could identify her captors later. This was pretty savvy, though inside a terrifying situation, Patricia focused on surviving and making sure that once she was free, the people who kidnapped her wouldn't be able to hurt anyone else. She already wanted to put them in jail for a long, long time. When they pulled her out of the car, a stale, dirty smell hit her nose. Patricia's mind flashed to a new story about a kidnapping victim who'd been buried in a box with only a tiny tube for air. Were they going to bury her? She panicked, thrashing and fighting. They were not going to bury her alive. She wouldn't allow it. Please don't. They'd never. It's only a closet, for Christ's sake, someone said. They forced her onto a filthy, stinking mattress and slammed the closet door. All Patricia could do was cry. She was helpless, trapped. She might as well have been buried alive. Next time on Hostage, the negotiations between the SLA and the Hearsts, including the disastrous launch of the People in Need program and audio clips from SLA communiques. Through 1974, the FBI's expensive, massive investigation went nowhere. Every day they didn't find her, Patricia Hearst was tortured and coerced. We'll explore Randy Hearst's brave attempts to get his daughter back, how popular negotiation tactics backfired, and how maybe, just maybe, Patty didn't want to be rescued. You can listen to Hostage and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Hostage is written by Maggie Admire and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to Spotify, where you can listen to part two of the story. 
Spotify is the only place to find all future episodes as well as the entire hostage catalog. We've covered such subjects as the 1972 Munich Massacre, Prisoner of War, John McCain, the Siege at Waco, and many others. New episodes premiere every Thursday only on Spotify. Spotify.